Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 17 with Dr. Natalie Crawford. Thinking outside the box to me is always trying to figure out how you can reach more people, how you can have a bigger impact, and how you can change things and not just do them how they've always been done. I started to notice that most patients who came to see me already were behind the game. And I started thinking that if I could reach them earlier, perhaps I could change the trajectory of their course. I think sometimes this is one of those things that people don't really like to talk a lot about. That is so true. We know that there's a huge stigma with infertility. And the truth is that so many couples suffer from this. One out of eight couples will go through infertility. We feel like women are most empowered through education about their own bodies and their fertility. There's an interesting stat also about how much, how many times it's the woman versus how many times it's the man who has a problem, right? Yes, that's true. I mean, officially it's about a third of the time it's the woman, a third of the time it's the man, and a third of the time it's some combination or an unexplained factor. Mm -hmm. So really, even though women often feel like they feel the burden of the disease the most, it's a couple's disease. And we have to feel like we need to evaluate and take care of both people in that couple. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In today's episode, we're bringing you a world leader in fertility and reproductive health. Dr. Natalie Crawford is a board-certified OB-GYN doctor who specialized in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. REI is like the intimate relationship on steroids. Yeah. This is, you know, somebody's whole hopes and dreams of having a family, and you really, really, really get to know them. So I loved that personal connection, in addition to it's really nerdy, like the science is super cool. That's why in today's episode, we're going to be dissecting her brilliant mind and giving you valuable practical tips for couples who are trying to conceive, have had trouble trying to conceive in the past, and or are planning on having children in the future. We touch on how innovative reproductive endocrinology and infertility has become and the options that are available to the general public. This includes IVF, in vitro fertilization, egg freezing, genetic engineering, and which diets and exercise regimens are recommended when trying to increase fertility. Dr. Crawford and I jam-pack this podcast with facts that will leave you awe-inspired, and we also go in-depth about the challenges women in medicine face each day and how us men can play a supportive and empowering role in their lives. I can't wait to hear your feedback on this one, fam. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message or tag us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. And if you've been enjoying this content, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe to our podcast and go and rate it five stars on iTunes. Leave a review and let us know which parts of our episodes you enjoy most. It really would mean the entire world to our team. And now, without further ado, let the medspiration begin. It is my honor and privilege to introduce to you one of the world's leading experts when it comes to fertility and women's health. She's one of my biggest medspirations. And if you've been in New York in the past few months, you may have even caught her in the billboards at Times Square. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited. 
Um, I'm a fertility physician in Austin, Texas. So this means that I did an OBGYN residency, and then I completed three years of reproductive endocrinology and infertility fellowship. I've been out of practice for a little over three years, Wow. been in Austin, took a big job change since I've been here. But also I host a podcast too. So I host the As a Woman podcast, yet mostly to educate and empower women. I'm on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and just really trying to reach out to, especially to the women to help educate them about their bodies and empower them to make choices that suit them and not really what society expects of them, especially women in medicine. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, I did want to talk about kind of the training required, like even going back to college days. uh, What was your journey to get to where you're at? Well, I always wanted to be a doctor. I knew that. And so I went to undergrad at Auburn Mm -hmm. and I majored in nutrition and I was pre-med. So I did my pre-med requirements also. And then I got into medical school at UTMB. So in Galveston, Mm -hmm. which was great. I had no idea what type of doctor I wanted to be. I just knew I love to help people. And I was fascinated by the science of the body. So that was my driving factor. The hard thing in medical school is I was so happy to be on clinical rotations that I loved it all. Me too. Yeah, I just loved it all. It was just so fascinating to me to finally be taking care of people and hearing their stories and playing a role in some facet in their life. So I actually didn't really have great mentorship in medical school looking back now. And I got the advice that if I wanted to be a mom one day and have children, I should pick a really lifestyle friendly field. And if I like doing all of it, then maybe something like ER would be a good fit mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you could do shift work. You could work as much or as little. You got to do procedures and have variety and you could leave your work at work. Like That was a big selling point that older physicians had told me you want to leave your work at work so you can go home and be with your family Mm -hmm. and i took that advice matched into a great er program and started and realized pretty quickly along the way it was totally wrong for me i loved the people i worked with but i could not leave work at work that actually was the exact opposite of why i wanted to be a doctor i want to play a role in somebody's life and know their story and know what happened to them. Did I do the right thing or the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. And so it dra- it just dragged on me. I went to my program director who was really great. I was like three months into intern year and said, this is wrong. Like, I know this is wrong. I have no idea what to do, but this is wrong. And they, we agreed that if I'd stay the year so they wouldn't have holes in their schedule or make my co-residents work more, that he would help arrange things so I could do electives and I could try to find what fit. And I ended up really loving women's health. I'd always loved women's health. In hindsight, I was just scared of the perceived lifestyle of OBGYN and that kept me away from it. Mm -hmm. And when I went back and did it as an intern, I just loved being able to be so intimately connected with my patients, really work with them in a vulnerable time. So I transitioned over to OBGYN. So I did one ER intern year, then I switched to four years of OBGYN. And during that pathway, REI is like the intimate relationship on steroids. This is, you know, somebody's whole hopes and dreams of having a family and you really, really, really get to know them. So I loved that personal connection in addition to it's really nerdy, like the science is super cool. (laughs) So so that just really um, appealed to me, but I was nervous because it's highly competitive. There's only about 40 fellowship spots a year. 
And most programs have one fellow. And so it was really daunting to put myself out there and say, well, I want to do REI because it's so hard to do. I did research in residency, which was really tough. I did basic science research. I was in a lab pipetting and growing pituitary cells. It was ridiculous. But oh, my goodness. Yeah, because, I mean, after I'd be doing, I'd go, like, on after night shift, I'd go and then spend two hours in the lab in the morning and then go home to sleep. So it was a big commitment, but that really helped my application stand out. Mm-hmm. And I was able to match into REI at UNC and was there, and I just loved it. So it was perfect for me. I tell everybody, if they're interested in a fellowship or potentially interested, that one of the top things they need to do is go to a residency program that has that fellowship, uh, which we don't often think about. But mm-hmm. when young people ask me, oh, I love your job. What's the number one piece of advice? It's that in fellowships, these worlds are really small. And so if you're training in residency with some leaders in the field, that carries more weight than you realize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how many years is the REI fellowship? So the REI fellowship is three years. It is 18 months clinical and 18 months research. So I got my master's of science in clinical research during fellowship. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I did clinical research at that time, which I was much more interested in than basic science. And that has always given me a really nice perspective, especially in a world that's constantly changing, like my field, keeping up with the science, everything's always evolving. Mm-hmm. So having that research background was really helpful. Wow, that's really cool. Well, I want to jump straight into the deep end. Uh, we're beginning with Infertility 101. Um, mm-hmm. You shared a post on Instagram about your journey with pregnancy and many of the struggles that you endured. Uh, can you share your story and how it led you to empowering others? I think that's such a good question. One thing that I didn't realize So the current rate of infertility overall is one out of eight women will have infertility and the rate for female physicians is double. So it's one out of four. So struggling with infertility is not something that is actually that rare. I, when we started trying to get pregnant, I mean, I was an OBGYN resident and I had no idea one, what to even do, even though I was, you know, trying to get into this REI fellowship I found myself on chat boards and looking at groups and forums and trying to gather information on what to do, what would increase my chances. We ended up having three miscarriages and an ectopic pregnancy before we ever got pregnant. And that was really hard. It was very isolating. And I didn't share my story. This was really during that time where we kept things so personal. You didn't tell anybody you were pregnant, certainly not anybody at work not really your friends. And when I had the ectopic pregnancy, I mean, Jason, my husband was out on a business, or he was on a trip, like a personal trip, and I had to have him fly back home so I could get methotrexate. And then I had to like call my friends and I finally like didn't go to work. And it was really hard because I realized I hadn't told anybody we were trying. Nobody knew about the miscarriages. And I was at this really low place and they had no idea. And Luckily, we got pregnant. We have two kids. They're great. But Mm -hmm. that experience led me to realize two big things about women's health. One is that we don't talk about it enough. And there's a lot of stigma and shame involved with having miscarriage or not being able to get pregnant. And number two, women do not understand their bodies, even highly educated women, because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about hormones. We don't talk about what's normal. 
So it's hard for people to know when things are abnormal. Well, I just want to acknowledge you for being vulnerable and honest with the world. Uh, I think I believe miscarriages, they occur in one in four recognized pregnancies. So, you know, your story of basically turning tragedy into triumph and you using it to be honest with an intention to uplift others. I really think that's what it's all about. And it's probably helped you uh, be more compassionate as a, a healthcare provider as well. I definitely think my personal experience gives me a different lens. So does being on, you know, Instagram, to be honest, because being connected to so many different women and couples and see what they're going through, too, really changes how you view the world. You know, I started the Instagram account because I kept feeling like as an infertility fellow, I was telling women the same thing over and over again. Uh Very basic information about their bodies, statistics that made their eyes pop out of their head, and even the highly educated woman had never heard it. Wow. And I really started thinking, if I could put this information out there in mass, perhaps I could reach people before they came to my office. Maybe they would make different decisions. Maybe they would see me sooner. And that's really what pushed me. And I've really seen how, you know, not all doctors are created equal. You know, some people are getting dismissed or doctors are not believing their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't know. They hear, oh, you should try to get pregnant for a year before you go see the doctor. Mm -hmm. But they have no periods. They're totally amenorrheic. And you you and I know that means they're not ovulating. They're not really trying. Mm -hmm. But the layperson says, well, this book says I need to wait a year to go see somebody. And really, women were just wasting their own time, not meaning to. Mm -hmm. And so that really has been a compelling factor for me is to get that message out there to more women. That's beautiful. So if a couple is trying to conceive, what are some recommendations you give them? Okay. So the first thing is if you're trying to get pregnant, you want to make sure that your periods are really regular because that's the number one sign that you're ovulating. So if they're not irregular, you should come see your OBGYN or me before you even get started on the journey. Mm-hmm. Other things I recommend are taking a prenatal vitamin, of course, also making sure that you're eliminating toxins from your life. You know, you're not smoking cigarettes or marijuana. A new study came out showing increased association with marijuana use in men and miscarriage. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it just came out. So I think that making sure that you are control, what I tell my patients is I want you to control everything you can control. There's so much that you can't, you may not be able to help certain things. You can't change your age, but you want to make sure you're living, you know, the best life that you can and putting the healthiest things in your body. So you have the highest chance of a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Also just being aware of age. If you're over the age of 35 and you want more than one child, you may want to seek help sooner. So we recommend after six months, if you're not pregnant, coming in. And any woman who's 40 or over, we want them to come right in for an evaluation before they even get started so that Mm -hmm. we can just expedite things and not wait if something is wrong. What about diet? Like, is there any cool research out there that shows certain diets being more beneficial, specifically in like pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy and postpartum? I I love diet. I already said I was a nutrition major and- I'm whole food plant-based and I really think it's a great way to live. But I, one, I always say diet research is super hard, right? So it's all observational stuff. You can't have a good RCT on this, but Mm -hmm. there is some observations that what we call the fertility diet is one that's high in whole foods. So 
they did a study, the nurses health study was looking at, you know, thousands of nurses and looking back on which behaviors were more associated with getting pregnant or having healthy pregnancies. So eating lots of good fruits and vegetables, whole grains, you know, then low in sugar, low in processed food, lower in meats. So specifically like red meats and chicken have been shown to be more, you know, inflammatory and they have more toxins in them. And then dairy is kind of controversial. The best paper looking at dairy showed that low fat products had lower chances of conceiving. But if you ate full fat products, you actually had higher. So the thought process there is if you're going to have dairy, you might as well have the real dairy because the highly processed stuff to take the fat out, they're putting other things in. I recommend that all my patients go as whole food plant-based as possible. But I say Mm -hmm. the spectrum, if you're going to eat meat some, I mean, that's fine. But think about three meals a day and maybe drop your meat consumption to one meal a day Mm -hmm. and limit out sugars, take out sodas, you know, really try to eat very, very clean if you can. Okay. Uh, what, what are your recommendations when it comes to prenatal vitamins, multivitamins? So I love prenatal vitamins. I mean, obviously they need to have folic acid in them. That's kind of the essential thing, Mm -hmm. but also they need to have a good amount of vitamin D. We're finding that vitamin D is highly associated with reproductive outcomes, especially embryo implantation. So we think it's really important in the uterine lining. That's very cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I think the one recommendation that a lot of people don't know is that it's very trendy to put a high amount of biotin in prenatal vitamins, you know, for like hair and nails. But biotin actually uh, interferes with steroid hormone assays. So what we, uh, yeah, I know. And um, so when we see women, sometimes they're like estrogen level is not making sense with what's clinically happening. It can, it can even impact our IVF cycles a lot because it makes your blood levels unreliable. So I always tell patients, I want them to come off of biotin and make sure they're getting a prenatal that if it has some has just a little amount and not this like you know 300 times the daily recommended allowance wow okay that's that's really good knowledge um so i get i get a ton of moms and future moms who exercise a ton and they're always curious about like how much they can be exercising what do you typically recommend I, I'm a huge believer in exercise. I think that what your body is used to doing is totally fine. So if you're a heavy exerciser, that's fine. When we're doing fertility treatment, I'm going to totally change that tune because we highly know these different times of reproduction and what's important. The number one thing for my patients is I want their heart rate less than 150 beats per minute when I want the uterus to have good blood flow. Because if your heart rate's getting over that, you're going to constrict blood and it's going to shunt away from the uterus so that it can go to your brain and your lungs. Then your uterus isn't getting what it needs. So usually that's that first trimester when the placenta is trying to implant in after we do an embryo transfer. So my patients know that I will cut them back from their heart rate. But now your 150 and mine may be very different. So I don't limit like types of activities. I just say, hey, you need to wear a heart rate monitor and track this. Make sure that you're averaging less than this when you're working out. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. And disclaimer, please consult your physician before starting any type of exercise regimen. Uh, But there has been some pretty awesome studies out there. Uh, One specifically I was published in the National Library of Medicine, prenatal exercise in healthy mothers benefits not only the expectant mother, but her growing baby for years to come. Uh, The unborn babies of exercising mothers learn to play along, learn to adapt to each of the mother's movements during exercise, becoming like a workout partner. And one of the coolest 
things they found was the heart, the hearts of exercising babies actually pump more blood with each heartbeat, which is an increased ejection fraction. Um, that's a characteristic that athletes typically develop. So they, they did notice these kids, they've been shown to maintain a higher ejection fraction up until the age of six. So that does suggest working out while your baby is in the womb may have a positive long-term effect on the overall health and evolution of the child. I found that so cool. That's fascinating. I love that. Yeah, I love telling moms that. Have you heard anything about yoga and and pregnancy? So, I mean, we restrict patients from hot yoga. One, because we don't uh, want the poor body temperature to get that hot. And gotcha. so we restrict off that overall yoga for the most part is is a great because of good body movements. It's like good core work. Mm-hmm. However, when we're doing fertility treatments and your ovaries can be stimulated, we don't want to do inversions because of the risk of ovarian torsion. So if your oh, ovary wow. is growing and you have multiple follicles on it, like in the course of IVF, those follicles are fluid filled. And so the ovary is going to rise in the pelvis and has a higher propensity to twist on itself. Yeah. So for anybody who's doing fertility treatments, no hot yoga. And then I say, if you do yoga, no inversions at all. So you want to be really careful about keeping the ovaries in the pelvis. Good to know. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into next. So when all else fails, what options does REI offer? So it's interesting because we actually have less in our tool belt than most people think we do. Oh, wow. The reality is when it comes to trying to help you get pregnant, I can try to help you ovulate. So we can use medications to induce ovulation. That can either be pills or injections, depending on the etiology of why you're not ovulating. Mm -hmm. We can do an IUI, which is an intrauterine insemination. That's where the sperm is ejaculated and then cleaned and then put in a catheter and put into the uterus. I like to use the analogy of getting your best players further down the field. Yeah, you may not be able to make the shot, but you're getting them closer to where they need to go. (laughs) And then... Sometimes those two are used together. So you have ovulation injection, IUDI, and then sometimes you do both of those. And then you have IVF. So IVF is in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. It is where you are taking the eggs out of the body, fertilizing them with sperm, and making embryos in a lab. When you're talking about the other treatment options, so ovulation induction or IUI, you're never going to exceed somebody's age-related chance of getting pregnant. Meaning Mm -hmm. if you are 30 the highest I'm going to get is going to be a 20% chance of pregnant. If you've been trying to get pregnant for more than a year and everything is marking out fine, the highest I'm going to get is half of that. So it's going to be 10%. IVF is the only treatment option that ever is going to exceed your natural chance of getting pregnant. And that is because we're overcoming so many barriers. Egg and sperm meeting, fertilization defects are one. But also the tubal environment, we also think is highly important. And so the tubes are connected to the peritoneum, the abdominal environment, highly sensitive to stress or inflammation and toxins. And that process of early embryo development, the first five days, all happens in the fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens in the IVF lab, that is allowing us to grow embryos in a perfect environment, controlled pH, there's no toxins, there's no inflammation, there's the right temperature, and we see much higher rates of pregnancy when you do IVF. You also, it's often the safest because you're going to have lower chance of multiples. So the twin and triplet rate is actually much lower with IVF. Oh, okay. We control the embryos that are put inside and we can do genetic testing on the embryos. What we mean by genetic testing is there's two different types of testing. One is a screening, so looking at a karyotype. So are the embryos genetically normal as far as chromosome number? 
That's the number one cause of miscarriage, especially as women get older. And the other is screening for single gene defects. So if you and your partner both carry cystic fibrosis, or if you yourself are a BRCA carrier and you don't want to pass those genes on, we can make a probe for where that gene lives and then flag it on the embryos as well. Wow. Fascinating. That is incredible. And how, how soon before that gets into like genetic engineering? Like what if I want a baby that's like six, eight? I'm just wondering, like, is that possible? Well, so that's called CRISPR and that's probably going to happen in China. No, I mean, there's, there's actually, it's highly ethically controversial, the field oh, that oh, I'm absolutely. in, right? Yeah, and yeah. so it's very interesting. This is a field where right now there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of private equity and a lot of money going into fertility, which is overall amazing. Money drives technology. Technology changes the game. However, there's this, you know, business side where you want to get out the newest and the greatest and things are introduced to the market before us as the scientific community has all the data on what does it mean. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really cautious applying new technology and understanding it fully before we just wildly implement it. Yeah, that's very true. So what's what's the cost of IVF? So it totally depends. At my clinic, so we offer things like a minimal cost. So it's a minimal stimulation protocol. It's not right for every patient, but it's right for some. And that costs about $10,000 with meds and everything. Mm -hmm. You can do the IVF with genetic testing, like the whole shebang. can be like up to twenty or 25000 And then there's costs that are even more, like if you're using donor eggs. So if you are a woman who is much older, your chance of having a genetically normal child is super low or you're running out of eggs. Or even if you're young and you went into premature ovarian failure, you can use donor eggs. So eggs from a younger, healthy woman. Wow. That cost is even higher. It's usually going to be closer to thirty-five to forty thousand dollars. Does insurance cover any of this, or is this kind of elective and it's? So that's a great question. So some states are called mandated, and so mandated states actually cover fertility treatments. Amazing. Okay. And so like Illinois is mandated. Massachusetts is. And so there's a variety of mandated states. And so those are wonderful states to live in. Mm -hmm. Um, Texas is not. Okay. So we are not a mandated state. So probably about 20% of my patients have insurance that covers treatment. The the number's rising. So what we're seeing is that progressive companies, specifically tech companies, Mm -hmm. have a higher interest in trying to appeal to providing fertility benefits and fertility preservation options to their employees. Mm -hmm. So as I'm in Austin, so like as Apple and, you know, those type of employers have come in, we've seen an uptick in the amount of insured, which is, which is really, really amazing. Mm-hmm. Although, interestingly, big studies have shown that financial is not the number one reason why people drop out. Oh. And that people actually drop out of treatment because of the emotional burden and not understanding the process. Yeah. So even in mandated states, so if you're in a mandated state and you have three IVF cycles and three transfers, so you have all this covered for you, there's still a large percentage of people who leave treatment before they achieve a pregnancy. And the reason why I usually cite is emotional burden. They just can't keep putting themselves out there. That makes sense. Well, I wanted to talk about egg freezing as well. I know that's really popular. Um, What can you tell us? I love egg freezing. So there's a lot to talk about because it's super trendy. So the Uh first thing is that the reason why it's trendy is because it is now available. Egg Uh freezing was experimental until 2012. Yep. And so it's still new overall in the field of being able to offer it to the public. The reason why is if you think about it, an egg is a single cell. So it's highly fragile versus an embryo where we freeze an embryo at about a 200 cell stage. So Mm -hmm. it's much more strong and hardy. Egg freezing 
was experimental when we didn't have the best freezing mechanisms and eggs weren't surviving very well. As technology got better, we saw that more and more eggs were surviving. And so now we have about, we would say a national average would be about 80 to 85% survival of eggs from the freeze thaw, which is great. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. and my clinic is close to 90%. So that's amazing. I think that for young women who are purposely delaying their conception, either because of career aspirations or they haven't met the right partner, it can be a game changer to take a pressure off the relationship wow. and pressure off the unknown, meaning every woman runs out of eggs at her own unique potential. And I can evaluate your fertility and tell you how it is right now, but mm-hmm. I can't predict the future. Yeah. So I always say it's like having a graph and I've got one data point, but I don't know the slope of the line. So I don't know how fast it's dropping, but in every woman, it is dropping. Egg freezing is going to be more successful the younger you are and the more eggs you have. So the kind of thought process of I'm going to wait till I'm 37 to do it, you're going to have a lot poorer outcomes than if you freeze your eggs at 32. We kind of know from studies that around 32 to 33 is where you still, for the average woman, have peak number of eggs and the best quality before both those metrics start to drop down. Okay. So that's usually what I tell women is if you know 32 or 33, you foresee that you're not going to be ready to get pregnant then, that's a good time to come see me and start talking about egg freezing, you know, then or earlier. Okay. It is not as expensive as IVF because you're only getting partway through the process. That was my next question. Yeah. yeah. So it's not nearly as expensive because you don't have to do all the fancy stuff in the lab. They just get frozen. You'll pay more when you come back to utilize them later, but they're also just single cells. So if you end up never needing them because you decide not to have kids or you get pregnant naturally, then you can just dispose of them without the emotional toll that sometimes disposing embryos has for some people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you actually take these eggs and you freeze them, say I froze, uh, you know, my wife froze her eggs for X amount of time and now she's, she wants to have a baby. Do you reimplant those eggs or do you do IVF or like, is that a choice? Like, how does that work? Okay. Great question. So whenever we talk about egg freezing or IVF, the process for the woman who's going through it through a Mm -hmm. cycle is exactly the same. So when you think about this, if we're going to give a mini anatomy lesson on the ovary, imagine inside the ovary that there's a vault where all the eggs a woman has is. So you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have in the vault. At the start of each month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault and each egg grows in a follicle. So we'll use egg and follicle interchangeably. The brain normally sends out follicle stimulating hormone, FSH, which stimulates an egg to grow. The brain and the ovary are BFFs because you don't want to grow lots of eggs at one time. So they talk really tightly to each other. Depending on your age and how many eggs are left inside the vault, you're going to have a different number of eggs come out of the vault. Meaning when when the vault's crowded, a lot of eggs come out every month. And when the vault's getting empty, fewer eggs come out every month. So we evaluate the eggs outside the vault to understand how many are left behind. But the number of eggs that are outside the vault, that's the limit for what you could get for one cycle. So some women, when they go through multiple cycles of IVF or egg freezing, it might be because they have a lower number. So if I tell you a woman who's 30 has on average 16 to 20 eggs come out of the vault, that would be the number of eggs she could get in an egg freezing cycle. If she was running out of eggs early, she may only be able to get eight eggs. So she may have to do a couple of cycles or a couple of months get the eggs to grow that are outside the vault this month. And then the next month come and get those eggs to grow. The act of getting the eggs to grow isn't that long. It takes about two weeks. 
So it's about two weeks of hormone shots and coming in for visits. Mm. And we do a surgical procedure that's an egg extraction that's done under anesthesia. So we go in vaginally, take out the eggs, and then they go into the lab. So if you're egg freezing, it stops there. If you're doing IVF, then the eggs get fertilized. And that's the in vitro fertilization, yep. fertilization in the glass or in the lab. So that's where either sperm can be put around the egg and the sperm can still fertilize on its own, or we can actually inject one sperm into each egg. And that's called ICSI. Even when you do all this, there's like a lot of natural loss. So if you get 20 eggs, usually you'd have about 16 of them fertilized and then about eight embryos would grow out. Mm-hmm. Then depending on your age, if we check the genetics of the embryo, you'd have a different number. So if you were 35, about half your embryos would be normal and half would not. So we'd say, okay, now we have eight embryos. Four of them are genetically normal. And then each genetically normal embryo, when you go to implant it later, would have about a 65% chance of becoming a baby. Okay. So there's a lot of natural loss along the process. Mm-hmm. One reason why egg freezing has gotten a bad reputation by some is that they're not really counseled well by their doctor. So they're Mm -hmm. like, hey, I froze 10 eggs. That's great. And they go on with their life. Then they go to use them. And depending on how old they are, 10 eggs may not equal a baby. So then they feel like they paid this money and they've been saving and they've been waiting for something that was not truly a guarantee that they thought it was. Okay. I always say that egg freezing is not insurance policy. Yeah. yeah. It's an opportunity, right? It is keeping multiple doors open so that in the future, you have the best chance of having the family that you want Mm -hmm. while you're purposefully delaying or waiting. So I always think that's really an important perspective. If your wife froze her eggs, then when you're ready to use them, we would get sperm, warm up the eggs, and then fertilize them. And that second half of the process would happen before an embryo is implanted. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how, how long can they remain frozen? And do you, how many do you recommend freezing? Yeah, it's fascinating. So for the average woman, <laughs> we, usually want, we usually want about 15 to 20 eggs, okay. depending on how old you are or your reproductive goals, like how big of a family you want. Mm-hmm. It appears that they can be frozen indefinitely, that there's no degradation over time. Wow. That's more supported by embryo data because embryos have been around longer. But the longest an embryo has been frozen and then turned into a baby was 24 years. So they'll like freeze the embryo once it's formed and like you can just put the embryo in when you want. Is that what you're saying when you say Yeah. That's incredible. That is so cool. Wow. So let's pretend you and your wife came to me and you guys want kids and you're already married, but you don't want them now. We would actually go through the whole process to make embryos and then we just would leave them frozen as embryos because they're nice and hearty. And when you were ready for kids, even if that's in 10 years from now, we'd come back. And then we could warm an embryo up and put it in a catheter and transfer it. That's medspiration, ladies and gentlemen. Like that is. <laughs> it is game changing. It's game changing, oh. one, for professional women, but also for cancer patients or those with a medical disease. Wow. So fertility preservation for cancer is really what's pushing the industry for egg freezing. Because if you get a breast cancer diagnosis and you have treatment coming at you that has a high risk of ruining those eggs inside the vault. We need to get them out now, especially if you want more kids or you haven't started your family and you want the option for kids. So that's really what's been pushing the field to make this more accessible so that we can help those who have cancer diagnoses. Wow. 
Okay. And when it comes to ovarian reserve, what's like the average amount of eggs that you're born with? So, I mean, you're born with millions of eggs. Okay. Um, and then they degrade over time. So, they actually, you have the highest number of eggs you're ever going to have when you're a fetus inside your mom. So, right around wow. 20 weeks, you have the highest amount ever. You have about half of that when you're actually born. And then they degrade over time. So, you're losing eggs all the time, even before your period starts. So you're losing eggs, your body just hasn't caught in to let any of them ovulate. And similarly, you still lose eggs when you're on birth control pills. So that's a big misnomer mm -hmm. that it causes the whole process. But really, eggs are still coming out of the vault. Just birth control pills tell the brain not to send out FSH. So nothing's being stimulated. Uh, okay. Eggs come out of the vault, still die. They don't change the rate of dying in any way. We think some things do differently predispose you to running out of eggs earlier. Smoking is well established mm -hmm. to cause women yep. to go into ovarian failure earlier, have fewer eggs per IVF cycle. We don't have good data on marijuana yet, although it's suspicious. Mm -hmm. Similarly, environmental toxins are showing in the lab studies to have lower ovarian counts in animals. Wow. So we think that BPA, phthalates, and things like this wow. are probably one of the top causes why we're seeing an increase of diminished ovarian reserve in younger women. Because when they were young, they were exposed to some of these chemicals and plastics <laughs> and other things when they had no control over it. So okay. yeah, and then women with autoimmune diseases have a higher chance of also having autoimmune attacks on their ovaries. So mm -hmm. like Hashimoto's disease, autoimmune thyroid disease, or celiac disease, or some of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, next, I want to talk about the incredible physiology of the female body. We do a lot of menstruation posts on this, and you know, I wanted to talk about the menstrual cycle. And I listened to one of your podcasts where you started talking about stop hiding your tampon. And I was having this conversation with my mom and my wife yesterday, just because um, in in the in the Indian culture, it's it's if anything, it's even more taboo than than the average. But it's taboo everywhere. So please enlighten us. So I think a great example of this is I'm now on TikTok right now, which is highly controversial for some doctors, but I posted a video about what's a normal period yeah. and what things are not normal, meaning if your period is causing you to miss out on social activities or call in sick to work or school or make you take narcotic pain medication, make you throw up or pass out that these are not normal things and mm -hmm. you should seek medical help. That video has gotten millions of views, over 4 million views. So and cool. it's you read the comments and what you're noticing is that because nobody talks about their period, everybody just presumes what they are going through is normal, yeah. even if it's highly abnormal because they don't have any other basis for comparison. Or they feel or they get the message that they're being weak because they're complaining about something that every other girl is going through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really showing us that the lack of talking about our bodies is impacting women. So that's why there's a higher you know, association with depression and anxiety in women with chronic pain diseases like endometriosis, mm. because they've been told that something's wrong with them, Yeah, yeah. that they, they can't handle the pain. I always say having regular periods is the number one sign that your hormones are functioning. Because what happens is as the brain sends out that FSH, to stimulate one of those follicles to grow, that is when the egg makes estrogen. And that's the first two weeks of the cycle. That estrogen is growing the lining for potential pregnancy, making the lining inside the uterus nice and fluffy. When you ovulate, then you make progesterone. Mm -hmm. So that follicle that grew the egg then turns into a cyst called a corpus luteum, and that makes progesterone. The corpus luteum lasts about two weeks. And if there's a pregnancy, it keeps on living. And if there's not, it dies. And then your progesterone drops. 
and then you'll get a period. So this process for the average woman should happen every month at a regular predictable interval for her. So she should be able to look on a calendar and with a couple days of error, say, this is when my period's coming. Mm-hmm. And if they can't do that, there's all kinds of causes of abnormal periods. So it can be thyroid disease, pituitary disease, PCOS, autoimmune disease, you know, ovarian failure, all kinds of things can be contributing there. But I'll see women with irregular periods for years and years, and they never seek help, and nobody's ever really told them that it's abnormal. Also, not having periods, especially if you're overweight, Mm -hmm. can lead to endometrial cancer because Mm -hmm. fat cells can make estrogen, which can stimulate the uterine lining. So there can be long-term medical consequences from this. Painful periods can be endometriosis, which is a totally different problem. Mm -hmm. The current prevalence that we quote for endometriosis is one out of 10, although... um, I actually think it's probably much higher. Mm-hmm. Reason why is endometriosis is an inflammatory condition. What I usually tell women is the best way to try to explain it is that in every woman, when you're on your period and your uterus is contracting to try to expel menstrual blood, some of those blood cells go through your fallopian tube. Okay. We know that because if we go do an emergency appendectomy on a girl who's on her period, we'll see some menstrual blood in her peritoneal cavity. And it's no big deal. Okay. And the average woman who does not have endometriosis, your body sees that and says, oh, she's on her period. Not a big deal. But if you have endometriosis, your body sees that and sends out cells to attack it like uh-huh. an autoimmune disease and says, oh, this is not normal. Why are we bleeding? And then you get these patches of inflammation that get stimulated with every cycle to be worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And the inflammation causes pain. And over time, it can lead to scarring. Just like if you had a scab and you constantly were picking it off, you would get a scar on your arm. It's the same mm-hmm. way inside your body. That inflammation and scarring can lead to infertility, but it can also have lasting pain impacts. So the top three symptoms of endometriosis are painful periods pain with intercourse and pain with bowel movements. Mm -hmm. So if you have some of these pain symptoms, I always say cramps are normal, but pain so bad that it's interfering with your life. Mm -hmm. You would cancel dinner with friends because you're on your period. That's not normal. Okay. You need narcotic pain medication. We don't even give narcotics for surgery anymore. Yeah. You need it for your period, right? And so... I just think nobody gets told some of these messages, but endo is only diagnosed surgically right now. So that's why I think this prevalence of one out of 10 is actually lower. You know, we think that there's an undiagnosed prevalence because to get to the stage where your pain is so bad Mm -hmm. or you have infertility. So in women with unexplained infertility, the prevalence is much higher. It's up to 30%. Oh, okay. Wow. And, you know, there's something really fascinating that I noticed where like women, if they're friends or best friends, they hang around them long enough. Sometimes their their menstrual cycles align and they have their menstrual cycle at the same time. Now, my wife and I, we tried to look this up. Like I never found an answer of why, but there's something fascinating going on there. Do you happen to know why that happens? We think it's evolutionary. It's just like the brain, the hormone levels kind of synchronize up. Wow. Because if you think back in the day where women were really, truly, I mean, obviously in some areas of the country, they still are. But yeah. really, they were secluded from their community when they were on their period. Wow. That it would be, they would have a higher chance of surviving that process if they were secluded together. Oh. And so, yeah. So we think it's some type of hormonal communication between the bodies likely linked to the progesterone okay. that is synchronizing women up. But it's fascinating, right? Dude, it's so cool. And you know, like I was mentioning to you when we spoke over the phone, like I want to have a daughter one day and like I want to play an empowering role when it comes to her menstrual cycle. 
Um, because without the menstrual cycle, the human species would cease to exist. So for all my brothers out there, before you judge, just know, like, I wouldn't even be living or breathing if it wasn't for this cycle. So shouldn't we be respecting and honoring it? I mean, I know with my wife, we celebrate it. We call it the the baby makey. And I, I love to acknowledge her for the sacrifices she makes for both of us because you know, that's something I'll never experience, but I do see how at times it makes life more challenging. So uh, one of the biggest things that I want to do in my family, I was speaking with my mom about this, is you know, not not shaming the family members about it because it's, it's really bad in the Indian culture where women, like you were saying, they're like excluded from activities. Like, I don't know, I heard culturally some, some women are allowed to cook in the kitchen. Yeah, you've heard of that, right? Where they oh, literally yeah. have to go to a hut behind their house until their period. Yeah. Is done. And women have died in these menstrual huts in certain Unreal. cultures. I, I love your perspective on it because I think it is true. It is a normal bodily process that keeps our species alive. It's fascinating and really so brilliant. It is a well-constructed system to be yeah. able to keep a womb ready for a pregnancy whenever it may come. And so I hate that there's so much shame around it. There's so much thought about being dirty or mm -hmm. being unclean or the thought that it's gross or icky and that women have to hide the whole process. I think that open communication is essential. Yep. Yep. Good. I, I hope that starting this conversation, hopefully it inspires that because I want to talk about it like a gift. Next, I do want to talk about the uterus. What can you tell us about this amazing organ? I love the uterus and it's so poorly understood. So I always like to explain to my patients that first of all, just understanding the development is really cool. Uterus is actually formed in two different parts, like little buds yeah. that then grow in a long and then they fuse together and then the midline septum reabsorbs. And so that's how we get this nice little triangular shaped uterus. Defects can happen at all different stages of the process, which is truly fascinating. I They're called Mullerian defects or Mullerian abnormalities, and they are very independent of the ovaries. So the ovaries come from a different tissue line. The fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, and upper third of the vagina all develop from these buds. So you can have complete absence of both of them. That's called Mullerian agenesis, also known as Meyer-Rokitansi Kusterhauser syndrome. Oh my God, you um, can say it. <laughs> Yeah, and those are the women who have been receiving uterine transplants, which is phenomenal, right? So deceased wow. donor uterine transplants or from a living donor where a Incredible. uterus is taken out of someone's body and put in. And so far, the cases have been girls who have um, Maya Rokutansky, who have malarian agenesis, have been the ones who have received them. They have to be on immunosuppressants because it's like an organ transplant. Mm -hmm. They then usually undergo... Typically, they're undergoing IVF or they already have, so they have embryos ready, but they that's not always the case. But essentially, as soon as they're done using the uterus, it's going to be removed from their body so they don't have to be on immunosuppressants anymore. Gotcha. So it's being transplanted so they can have a pregnancy. Then it will. Then they'll have a hysterectomy and it will be removed. But that surgery, I mean, like that wasn't even something we were talking about when I was in wow. med school. And now it's being done for those women. And I think that's just amazing. Whereas previously, their only choice would be a gestational carrier or somebody else yeah. to carry their pregnancy. But women can have all these different abnormalities. You can have just one horn developed. That's called a unicornate uterus. You could have two completely independent horns, and that's a didelphus. You can have all these different a bicornuate where there's partial fusion, fusion and then there's a septum. So a septum is the most common abnormality. Okay. It is just failure of the very last stage of the process. So a midline septum that connected these two different buds failed to reabsorb completely. 
there's almost no symptoms of this. Mm -hmm. So when you're walking, breathing life as a woman, you have regular periods, you have no idea. Number one symptom is recurrent miscarriage. So about 80% of pregnancies in women who have a uterine septum miscarry. And that's because the septum is avascular, doesn't have the same blood supply as the rest of the uterus. Gotcha. The pregnancies tend to abort. I love septums because when you find them, you have an answer for why this is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, a, it's easily correctable. So that's a hysteroscopic surgery we get to do, which means a camera in the uterus. So a minimally invasive surgery where you put a camera through the cervix into the uterus and you can cut out the septum. You can see the uterus go from these two tunnels into one nice cavity. Super rewarding. But then you fix their problem. They're not yeah. going to go have these miscarriages anymore. So it's really interesting. Women who have these malarian abnormalities have a higher chance of having kidney defects or having vertebral defects also. So we always want to screen wow. them for those just because of the etiology of the timing and development when this defect happened. But the uterus is just super fascinating. You know, it is purposefully meant to shed a lining and then regenerate it every month. And so like the different layers of the uterine tissue, there's also so many random things that can go wrong. You can have uterine fibroids. So that's where you have a essentially a tumor a ball of abnormal cells. They're the muscle or the myometrial cells of the uterus. And they can be inside the cavity or outside the uterus. And their impact totally depends on where they are and how big they are. But they can cause heavy periods and really bad pain. And some of them can be huge. I've seen women look like they're pregnant because of uterine fibroids that are so big. Wow. The uterus, in many ways, it's the most med-spiring organ on this planet. It's the only human organ that's uh, capable of creating another organ during pregnancy. It'll create the placenta, which provides oxygen and nutrients to the fetus. And perhaps the coolest fact about the womb that I think, it's the fact that it could support something that's 150 times its own body weight. Uh, by the third trimester, the uterus usually becomes the size of a watermelon. And, you know, it kind of involutes within like six weeks and goes back to that normal size almost so quickly. And ladies, your uterus is connected to you. So when you get stressed, it gets stressed. It <laughs> relaxes. It relaxes. And this organ, you know, life is shared. It, it qualifies to train more than 20 lives if you want to have 20 babies. And it's the second heart of a mother. I told my mom this because she forms the heart of her children in, in the uterus. So Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's really yeah. fascinating when you think of how big it is, like you said, a watermelon size to give birth. I yeah. That the average size of a uterus for a woman is the size of her fist. And so, if you know, you ball up your hand into a fist, that is your non-pregnant uterus size. Yeah. So it's kind of beyond interesting how it can grow and evolve and respond to hormones. As you said, create the placenta, which is truly one of the most amazing organs that exists. Yeah. I always tell my women, as long as you don't have mullerian agenesis, you just have one. You have one uterus. And so we have to be very careful when we start looking at doing surgery on it or what that means because yeah, there's yeah. no room for error here. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed. And I wanted to talk about some some cool research that, that I read about. They did some research about stem cells and how uh, fetal cells can cross the placental barrier and repairs mom's organs. Is this is this something you've heard of? Is it true? So we definitely know that fetal cells cross the placental barrier. So uh -huh. if you think about non-invasive prenatal testing or the NIPS test, this mm -hmm. is what some women have heard about, like the early gender test. But essentially, yeah, yeah. if you draw, you know, a tube of blood in a woman who's around 12 weeks pregnant and you, you can centrifuge off the cells and the fetal cells have a different weight 
and you can actually test the fetus that way. We think it's probably important in helping mom not attack the baby, like getting desensitized to it. But there is also thought that there are healing properties from these kind of new regenerative cells in women, and that it potentially could be one reason why women who've had more pregnancies have lower chance of certain disease outcomes like cancer. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Just just to think about it, and I, I think the evolutionary perspective on that was that's like how the fetal prolongs its chances of surviving or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, really, really cool to, to think about. And I wanted to discuss one of the greatest superpowers uh, on this planet, which is breastfeeding. So do you usually tell your patients or what do you usually tell them to encourage them to breastfeed? So I always take the stance of especially now I have huge selection bias. So my patients have really struggled for the most part to try to get pregnant. And so gotcha. when you're talking about breastfeeding, I always say I'm a huge supporter of it, but you can't let it get yourself so stressed out, right? Wow. You have to make sure that you've got adequate support from your work, from, you know, your social community, you need time to pump, you need to know how to ask for what you need. But there's no judgment. Fed is best. So if you can't breastfeed or you're not making enough milk, that's fine. Don't have pride to it. Feed your baby with formula and it's fine. Okay. Breastfeeding is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I encourage all my patients to do it. But I also usually just start at the basics. You need to drink tons of water. Your nutrition is essential. Don't be trying to lose your baby weight when you're breastfeeding. Just try to eat so that you can have high quality milk to feed your baby. Wow. But it's a great time for bonding. And, you know, really pumping, I think, is the key. So we talk a lot about that because a lot of my women are professional women. Yeah. Working women. And so trying to figure out how to navigate getting back to the workplace and leaving your child at such an emotional time anyway. But when you think about the evolutionary process of breastfeeding and how beautiful it is mm-hmm. that you can sustain, you know, nutrients for your own child just from what you eat and drink, creating into milk, it's amazing. So, I mean, I, I, I'm a huge supporter in it, but I, I really think it's important not to judge because yeah, what I do yeah. find is a lot of patients feel like they have to breastfeed. And then if something's not going right for them, they have this immense guilt about the process. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that. You know, when we'll do menstruation posts, um, sometimes that's pro breastfeeding. Uh, we do get that. We do get that where uh, some women feel judged by it. And that really taught me a lot. You know, being more sensitive to the way that you approach it, you know, so and that kind of goes back to what you're saying, where the coolest thing about social media is you get to see how people are reacting and you get to see kind of, you know, how populations take in certain information. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because your intentions are good. And I find this too, when even little things, like if I say, oh, I wish my kids would slow down, right? Like stop growing so fast or yeah, I need you to stop growing. Like how moms will say that. And yeah. then there's mothers of, you know, who've lost children who will say, I'd give anything to watch my kids grow. Like my child died and I would, that yeah. comment, even though it's very popular and common, and they're sweet about it. They're like, I understand what you're saying. Your kids are going too fast. But please know for lost moms, wow. we want our kids, we'd give anything to see to see them grow as fast as possible. So same thing, right? You don't mean, you're not trying to harm. And like for yeah. me, a normal mom feeling of, oh my gosh, you're growing so fast. Yeah. But the comeback from it is, yeah, you see how people say it. And you're like, I can understand how that could feel insensitive to you, even though I wasn't trying to do that at all. I agree. I did want to talk about the culture of medicine when it comes to women physicians and having babies. Uh, you specifically just mentioned a lot of your patients are working women. And uh, you know, I think finding that balance is just something, first of all, like 
one thing I've noticed as a male physician, like I have a lot of privilege just walking around compared my wife is also a physician. And I, I just see that, you know, she gets treated like she's the nurse a lot of times. And like I even when I was a med student, people thought I was the doctor, you know, and just there's already this, you know, kind of gender inequality going on. And then on top of that, I feel like when women, they have a baby, they're carrying around for nine months. And then when they're um, trying to take care of the baby, like they're only given like six weeks to take care of their baby. Like, so what can you tell us about this culture? How can we contribute as men and as women to, to change it? What are your thoughts? I love this question. So we could do the whole episode on the bias yeah. of gender and, you know, being a woman in medicine. I think there's a few different things that are super important. One is that when men are, you know, even subconsciously presumed to kind of be more authoritative, mm-hmm. I loved it when my male counterparts, whether it was med students or co-residents, would take that and defer it to me like, oh, this is Dr. Crawford. She's my C, you know, and so take instead of just kind of rolling with it, actually correcting them. I also think that one thing that happens to women more than men, and of course, I'm making a lot of just assumptions in the general, Mm -hmm. is that when men know the answer to something, they often speak up fast and louder than when women sometimes wait to be called on. And I found that I at least sometimes would get interrupted by male counterparts who knew something. And so trying to make sure that you're aware of letting others speak, especially women who try to internally process a lot before they communicate versus Mm -hmm. sometimes men in general just tend to communicate with. And I think it's because women are afraid to be wrong Mm -hmm. and men understand as a whole part that being wrong is a part of the process. So they get their Mm -hmm. feelings out there better. As far as being pregnant, there's extreme bias against women who are going to get pregnant in residency or out in the workplace in medicine to the point where, you know, even though we say you can't ask women if they're married or going to have kids on the interview trail, you can get, and I have highlights on this on my Instagram under as a woman where people are sharing their stories of how they've been discriminated against or you need to be on birth control or, oh, you can't have a baby. We can't have you out. We need you here. And that pressure makes you feel like you are not pleasing people or causing workplace conflict if you do, in fact, go decide to get pregnant. And so I tell all young women, having a family is such a personal choice. Don't you dare let your job, no matter what it is, take it away from you if you're ready. If you are ready and your family is ready, you need to go for it. The best thing you can do is to be honest with the people around you because what you'll find, especially in residency and your co-residents, they want to support you. They want you to succeed. Yeah. And success is having the life you want. I am um, I would feel guilty, right? So Oh, I have to go out. I'm so sorry. You have to cover my call and you feel really guilty about it. Yeah. And um, one of the best things that my co-fellow, because I had my kids in fellowship. And so my co-fellow who was a year above me was a guy and his wife was actually pregnant the same time I was. And he went out of his way to try to alleviate some of the guilt. And it was really, really kind Mm -hmm. because I felt this constant pressure that I had to go above and beyond to show that none of my duties were slacking. And I was working myself like crazy. My daughter actually was growth restricted, probably because I was clinical fellow running around. But as I got further in the pregnancy, he'd say, hey, let me let me do this for you. And you do this other thing. Like, let me take that. You don't need to be in the OR for a six hour case. Like you can do it, but let me do that for you. Or let me take these calls and you can take them for me later. And it is fine. And really made a good effort to purposely say, don't feel bad 
I'm happy for you. Let me do this for you because it will make me happy. And he would say that. And that was really powerful. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I wanted to say, no, no, I got it. And he said, it'll make me happy to help you. Like, I know how hard this is. Let me help you. And I think that we, especially as women, don't want to ask for help. We don't want to say that we need help. So to have it be offered is very kind at times especially when you're going through this. My husband, so when I was in fellowship, I was at UNC and Jason is a pharmacist and he's employed by Duke. They have a, Duke has a um, six week parental leave. So he actually had longer paternity leave than I had maternity leave. And so I had the baby, I had the C-section, but I had to go back to work before him because their policy was more, I don't want to say lenient, but more appropriate. And so, which I think they have a very great policy, six weeks for anybody, parental leave, that's amazing. But mine was, nope, you have to abide by these guidelines. You have to take all your vacation, you know, plus you get this one week or you can't sit for your boards or you can't graduate on time and all these different things. The boards are a big deal. I really think in medicine, the number one thing we have to change to help families, women have babies in training is to not have these weird rules about you can't sit for your boards if you graduate a month late, like does that make any sense? Because I would have graduated fellowship a month or two late. Like, what does that matter if I graduate the end of July versus the end of June? It doesn't. Right. But I would have to wait a whole year to take my boards. And so that would be ridiculous to me. Right. Like, I don't want to delay that part of it. It'll be harder for me to get a job then. So you are forced to come back by our board associations. And so I think that's where we really have to go to start trying to make change on this process. It's tough, man. Uh, my wife's from the UK. They get they get a year paid leave. I think Canada has something similar. And when you hear these things about these other countries and you look at how like, you know, I have co-residents who are like, they'll say, oh my God, six months is an, a- or six weeks is an adequate amount of time. Like I'm happy to come back. Deep down in my heart, I'm like, that's not enough time. That's just how I feel about it. Uh, everybody has different opinions, but you know, if there's a way that we could advocate or actually be there to make a change, like, please reach out. Like, I want to be able to do that. So, yeah, it's it's tough. And you you actually mentioned infertility in physicians. Um, it, and it's higher. Is that right? It's double. Yeah, double the prevalence of infertility in female physicians oh. in the general public. What, why, why do you think it's doubled? Probably a combination from delay. So purposeful delay in okay. childbearing for career okay. goals. Increased stress of the working environment, lots of shift work, and probably not taking care of yourself. So that this environment that we put ourselves through. So because even when you control for age, we still see that increase. So I think it's not just purely a delay, but also more of the environment of which we train. Wow. Okay. That's that's something. And thank you so much. Like you're you're so good. Um, well, we're now moving to the most popular portion of our podcast, um, our audience questions. So we had over 50 submissions for you in 24 hours. Ah, I love it. Yeah, we we yeah. narrowed them down, picked the most common questions. So uh, we're gonna move into that now. Um, so question number one came from one of our followers, Ruchi Decoria. She asked, "How did she become an Instagram blogger alongside with her job, and then start a podcast?" That's a great question. I already talked about why I started it, just this desire to try to educate women. 
I will say that it takes a lot of time to, as you know, to be on Instagram and to do it effectively, to communicate with your audience and then to start a podcast. I was getting so much reward from it as far as really feeling like I was reaching people and helping them that that internally drove me to want to do it more. I switched jobs. I negotiated a contract a little over a year ago for the job that I'm in now, largely to control my intellectual property, meaning that I have full creative content rights over my Instagram and the podcast. I waited to start the podcast till that was in place. And I also have a better schedule. I work from seven to three, Tuesday through Friday. And so Mondays, I know your Mondays are not free, but Monday is the main day that I do a lot of this stuff. And that's nice because it's not taking away from just my family time on the nights or on the weekends. I can really put, you know, recording the podcast and writing blog posts and think, you know, collaborating with people usually into that day. And that opens up a lot of time and space. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm done with training. So I have that luxury now. Mm-hmm. When I was in fellowship, I had just started my Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't have as much time, but it wasn't nearly as big or as time consuming now. But I really think the power to reach people, our whole life is all about connections and relationship. And the more you can personally put yourself out there being vulnerable and authentic, yeah, the more it will resonate with people and your story will have the ability to potentially impact their life. And that's one of the most powerful things that we have right there. Oh, yeah. You know, I've been following you for many years now. And a similar reason why I just kept going is, is actually seeing that you're you're impacting people's lives and you, you, you can make a positive impact on people's lives who are in different countries, you know, and that's where it started getting really big to me where I'm like, dude, like you can reach people almost in every country and educate, educate. And even the way you're using TikTok, I really like it. I, I like the way that you're you're just finding a way to disperse knowledge. And I, I, I do feel like as healthcare professionals, especially uh, the younger ones who are really into this and know how to use all these platforms, like, uh, you know, to me, I, I feel obligated to do so. First thing I heard that I thought was really cool is you got all creative rights over content. That's probably gonna be really important. So I'm, I may be reaching out to yes, you about that. Free too. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I never considered that. All right. So question number two is by Malika QB. She asked, what are the biggest misconceptions about infertility? Biggest misconception that I see is that women can have a child at an older age. And I think a lot of this is due to pop culture and celebrities. So we will see celebrities having children at older ages mm-hmm. and they're not fully disclosing the mechanisms by which they had to get there. They don't talk about if they had IVF, if they had donor eggs, if they froze their eggs or embryos years ago, if someone else carried the baby. So we are starting to see a change in that. Like Christy Teigen's been a huge advocate. And there are others who have gone through infertility and have been really open with their stories, which is amazing. Yeah. But I, that's the one thing I see is that I see the 37, 38-year-old woman who has no idea that the vast majority of her eggs are already genetically abnormal. Mm-hmm. And I think the second biggest misconception I see is that being healthy means you'll be, you're fertile because yeah. you're, you're vegan and a marathon runner and you meditate and you practice this really great life that your fertility will be in check also. And I always say, it's not like your blood pressure. It is not yeah. like you can just take good care of yourself. I think that's an important piece of the puzzle but it's not the only thing. And so this idea that, well, I won't have trouble because I'm healthy mm-hmm. is totally wrong. That infertility does not discriminate and that it's okay to seek help. Powerful. 
Uh, question number three by Carissa Browning. Thoughts about the HPV vaccine? I love the HPV vaccine. So I am highly biased, right? We always talk about selection bias. I see patients who have the worst things happen to them. And yeah. women who've had cervical cancer have had their pelvis irradiated, their uterus rendered unable to hold a child later on, potentially have lost their uterus or their ovaries and surgery. Cervical cancer kills women. And the most common, although not the only, but the most common cause of cervical cancer is from high-risk strains of HPV, which can be prevented with the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. So so to me, it is a no-brainer that cancer kills and can have huge reproductive outcomes and impacts on women's lives. And if you have a virus that's known to cause cancer that can be prevented with a vaccine, there would have to be such a compelling reason for me not to give it to my daughter because mm -hmm. she's going to get it. Yeah. And that's beautiful. I mean, a physician is saying my daughter is going to get it. I hope that holds weight. Um, and I agree. That's, that's incredible. And there's some cool research coming out. I think they're they have a, a newer HPV vaccine that you could you could do in uh, older patients. Is that right? So, yes, it's just the original study when they went to validate the vaccine was in younger patients, kind of like as gotcha. preventive. And then there's some evidence that as they rolled it out to the older. So when I was in training, they rolled it out. But I think if you were over the age of 25, you wouldn't qualify. Your insurance wouldn't cover it. Ah. So they had so you'd have to pay out of pocket for it. So as they've done subsequent studies to show that it still is effective in an older age group, it's now getting insurance coverage for all women. So cool. Very cool. A uh, question number four, how does she create work-life balance with a family, a practice, social media, and everything else? Some days are better than other days. <laughs> I think that the honesty is that like there's give and take for things. Jason is my husband. He full-time works also. He's a pharmacist who does IT and he works from home and that helps immensely. Wow. So he is like parent on ground base. Yeah. And that's big. My um, schedule, like I said, is seven to three for four days a week. I don't take the kids to school that day. I get to work early, but I'm home in the evenings and I, and I help them and they eat, you know, I mean, I get home in the late afternoon and then we're done and we can play and we can cook dinner wow. and have dinner together. We eat dinner as a family almost every night. So I really don't do work during that hour. And I try not to schedule work meetings during that hour. We do a lot of family traditions. We have Sunday movie night where we'll have movies and we all watch together. And I think just the little things really matter. But I lean yeah. hard on people. My husband does a lot. His mom's in town and she helps. Mm -hmm. We have a nanny who helps with after school stuff. And we have somebody who cleans our house, somebody who does our lawn. And it's not like I'm really doing it all. Gotcha. I have supportive people in my life who support my vision and my passion to try to reach people and they know it takes time and having those people who don't make you feel guilty when yeah. you do things yeah. i think the hardest things for me has been in the past year as my platform has grown is travel so opportunities come up like hey come do the shoot for us for figs but you got to fly to la you know be out there for a few days or come speak at this meeting and or come give grand rounds and those are amazing opportunities yeah uh, but it does take me away from my family if i'm traveling mm -hmm. So I try to take them on as many things as I can. So we try to plan on like, when can we take the kids with us? When can we make a little family trip out of it so that they can be a part, even though they know that maybe they're going to go to the zoo with Jason while I go work, having them be able to come with me has been a nice way to try to keep that balance. Wow. I just want to celebrate you. That's so inspiring. And I'm glad you're out there and you're sharing your experience and you're really honest. I think that's, that's priceless. So I really do appreciate you. Um, so last question we ask every single person who's ever been on this podcast. It's 
When you first heard the word medspiration, what did it invoke? And what's your definition of medspiration? I love that. To be honest, it really invoked some nostalgia because I remember wanting to be a doctor well before I'm doing what I'm doing now. And just feeling that feeling of that inspiration to want to help people at a really raw level. Like I just want to do something where I can impact the life of other people and I can help them. So when you say medspiration, it really takes me back to that origin of why I wanted to be a physician, which I love because as you get deep in the trenches, sometimes you don't have those. You need that why. Oh yeah. 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 You kind of forget what kind of brought you to it in the beginning when you get down to the nitty gritty of things all the time. So that's really what to me, it's, it's a nostalgia feeling about what the heart of medicine really is and why those of us who choose a field in medicine, why we really went into this. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Dr. Crawford, um, can you just share with our audience where they can find you and um, some cool new things that you're doing? All right. So I am on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. That is also my TikTok handle, which I'm still trying to figure out. I'm an older one on the platform, but I really love the potential to reach especially a younger generation of women. I have a blog at nataliecrawfordmd.com. I host the podcast as a woman, and I'm going to be starting a YouTube channel, which ah, I'm nervous about. So having yourself on video is a whole different beast, right? Yeah. But I just feel like there's definitely a lack of good fertility or women's health information out there, and that that's something that needs to change. I I highly recommend that YouTube channel. Uh, We started ours maybe four or five years back. And I was showing my mom yesterday, like in India alone, we have 11 years worth of videos watched, which I, yeah, translates to like 6 million minutes watched or something. And you realize like we could, we could do all this talking one-on-one, but then like just, that's another platform where you could just get all this information out there and like, I just walked into a room with one of my patients last week during clinic and they were watching one of my YouTube videos. And I was like, whoa, like that's, life's a trip, man. <laughs> I know. I, I have patients who listen to my podcast, most of them now before they come and see me. That's so good. It's amazing because one, I'm educating them before they walk in the door, not somebody yeah. random. And two, they're empowered to kind of get the most out of their visit but it's very weird because they'll say oh I've listened to you it's so weird to see you in person or hear you talk (laughs) in person and that's really changed the game for me clinically because now I'm getting one uh, patients who are traveling to see me because they've heard me and developed like a bond with listening to me and two I'm getting the highly educated patient who is over some of the denial we see from infertility and they're ready to take action, which is fascinating. So I think that just really shows the reach you can have from a very pure idea of education can have huge impact. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling inspired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something medspiring.